Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in the 11th chapter and beginning in verse 25 until the end of that chapter. Again, I invite you to turn there and follow along in your scriptures as I read from God's holy and inspired word. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that He may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we approach these uh, closing verses of chapter 11, we need to realize that the Apostle is bringing the doctrinal portion of his letter to a close. Following his initial greeting and salutations and opening remarks in the first 15 verses of chapter 1, Paul then begins to set forth a lengthy presentation of the gospel which runs from verse 16 in chapter 1 to the doxology which concludes chapter 11. So if we think about it, Paul has made the case for how both Jew and Gentile are sinners in need of a Savior, but that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for both Jew and Gentile. That obedience to the law plays no role in our justification, but rather our justification is based entirely upon the perfect obedience of Christ to the law. And we are all justified in the sight of God because the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us even as all of our unrighteousness is laid upon Him. And at the cross, He suffered the full penalty for all the sins of the elect. 
And we have learned that whatever suffering we experience in this world is due to the fallen nature of man living in a world impacted by that sin. But that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And that there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And over the last three chapters, Paul has been enlightening the Roman church over the apparent dichotomy that is the Jews, who as God's chosen people have largely rejected their Messiah, but whom, Paul says, have done so according to the sovereign plan of God who is using their partial and temporary hard-hearted response to God's grace as a window of opportunity for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, as you might expect, there are a variety of theological understandings of what Paul means here and We will not take the time to explore those now, for it would require far too much time and would not be edifying for you. So allow me to offer that perspective that makes the best sense of what is actually here and not read anything into the text. Paul describes God's sovereign plan as it pertains to the future of the nation of Israel as a mystery. Now, he does not mean by that that it's impossible to understand unless you are one of the chosen few who have a special gift of discernment that allows you to read the newspaper in one hand and the scriptures in the other while you still read the tea leaves to know what will happen with Israel. Rather, he means that God has not revealed this part of his sovereign plan to anyone until recently but that it is now being made known to the body of Christ in the world. You will remember that following the resurrection, but just prior to Christ's ascension, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In the early days of the new beginning, before they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the thing that was foremost in the minds of the eleven disciples was that Jesus would need to establish the Davidic kingdom on earth. This was, after all, the promise that God made to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So to the disciples' way of thinking, after defeating death in the grave, we're about to get to the really good stuff of establishing a reign upon the earth where the coronation of Jesus will bring peace and prosperity and punishment to any and all who oppose him. Here's the king of kings, and he's about to take control. But do you remember how Jesus answers their question? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end 
of the earth. Jesus does not answer their question by saying, The Father has washed his hands of Israel. He does not say to them, Israel was simply a shadow of what was to come, but has now been replaced with something new. Instead, he says, it's not for you to know that time or season. But here is what you need to know and focus on right now. You will be empowered to bear witness to me, beginning right here in Jerusalem, then into Judea, then into Samaria, and then beyond to the furthest ends of the earth. Jesus was letting them know that they were getting ahead of themselves and ahead of the story. He had told them not that many weeks before that the temple was going to be destroyed, that not one stone would be left upon another. He told them that Jerusalem was going to be surrounded by armies, that the inhabitants would flee to the mountains, that it would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The eleven were so excited to get to the end of the story that they failed to remember all that Jesus had already told them about the times and the seasons. He did not say that God was finished with Israel. He was letting them know that there was a most important chapter that had to be finished before they would ever see the rise of that kingdom again. And Paul, here in chapter 11 of Romans, give some new revelation concerning this question of Israel now that a couple of decades have passed since Pentecost. And he is saying that the bulk of those who make up the nation of Israel are experiencing this spirit of stupor that causes their eyes to not see and their ears to not hear. It is partial and it is temporary in the sense that we are on God's timetable where a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as a day. Or in other words, God operates in the realm of eternity. So our time is not His time. While God does not own a wristwatch, His timing is always perfect. Now what will mark the end of this partial and temporary hardening will be when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When is that? Well, here again, let us accept the most basic understanding of the phraseology offered, which is that Paul has been arguing that the gospel has been hidden from the understanding of the Jews, while at the same time, by God's grace, it is being understood and it is being received by the Gentiles. And in that context, we would understand that Paul is saying that God's plan is to reach the Gentiles with the gospel and when the full number of them have been found... When that moment arrives, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the Jews, and as a nation, they will be enlightened to see and to hear the good news concerning their Messiah, Jesus. And they will be endowed with faith to receive His righteousness, and the world will witness a massive revival and restoration of Israel. And in this way, Paul says, All Israel will be saved. Now Paul is not arguing that in that day, every single Jewish person will come to know the Lord. His use of the word all there is not to be taken literally 
any more than the word all is to be understood literally in a variety of other places in the scriptures where biblical writers are speaking of Israel. But because he has been referring to the physical nation of Israel as being under this spirit of of stupor and suffering from this partial hardening, it would be inconsistent to think that what he means here as all Israel is a reference to the spiritual Israel that we spoke of in chapter 9, verse 6, when he said, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's not speaking of the spiritual Israel. He means the physical nation. So what we believe Paul is saying is that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, that the bulk of the nation of Israel at that time will respond to the Holy Spirit of God rushing through the descendants of Jacob, making the gospel clear and known, and that as they respond in repentance and faith, they will experience what every regenerate believer before them has experienced as their ungodliness is banished from them, as their sins are taken away, and the covenantal promises made to Abraham come to be theirs as well. Now, as he addresses the Gentiles in the Roman church, Paul says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, meaning at the present time. But it is also true that the Jews, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He says both things. Now, Paul is not speaking of election here as we are inclined to think about it, meaning election unto salvation, but rather he's speaking of the fact that the biological descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were the nation of people whom God elected to serve as the conduit through which the majority of God's interactions with the world did take place. They were the nation whom God claimed as his own and to whom God first revealed himself and set them apart for sacred duty. God's glory was first unveiled to them. They were the nation with whom God made the covenants. They were the nation to whom God gave His law to the world. They were the nation that were first instructed on proper worship. They were the nation in whom the other nations were to see an exaltation of the name of Yahweh. They were the nation to whom God conveyed His promises of a Messiah. They were the nation through whom the Messiah entered into the world. So when Paul says, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, he means that all of that history is not to be forgotten and thrown away or discarded. God made promises that God will keep for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, he says. God does not make a promise or a covenant that God will not honor because God is incapable of doing such a thing. Now, we may not fully comprehend all the intricacies of the promises that God makes, for we do not have the advantage of omniscient foreknowledge as does God. But let us never suggest that God has spoken falsely or that God's promises are conditional based upon our reactions to them For God has already taken our behavior into account before He ever made the promise. From before the beginning of time, God has known all that will be, and God has sovereignly ruled over His creation. 
Now, Paul summarizes all this as he points out that in the past, when Israel was receiving the grace and mercy of God, the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. But now they are the recipients of God's grace and mercy, and the Jews are consigned to disobedience. But there is a time coming, he says, when God's grace and mercy will be showered upon them anew in fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to them for the sake of their forefathers. Gentiles and Jews alike were all consigned to disobedience in order that God might have mercy upon all. Now here is a statement that perfectly summarizes all that Paul has been saying since chapter 1. And that is that our salvation is the product of God having mercy upon sinners. There is no other explanation. There is no other way. Apart from God's mercy, our disobedience and rebellion towards God condemns us for eternity. But notice this. God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. You see, God has left no doubt that we are lost because of our sin. It's only when we are convinced of our hopelessness that we will consider the gospel. Now, we need to make sure we don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Leon Morris puts it this way. Paul is not saying that God predetermined that all should sin, but rather that he has so ordered things that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, being disobedient, show themselves to be sinners and have no other escape than through his mercy. You see, Paul is pointing to the love and mercy of God, even in God's consignment of us in disobedience. By disabusing us of the idea that we are inherently good, God is setting the stage for understanding our hopelessness apart from God's mercy. Paul is not saying that God made us into sinners so that He could gain the glory by saving us, like the fireman who's also an arsonist, so that he can be the hero and gain the glory by putting out the fire. Paul is saying that God has rounded up us sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, and made it clear that our disobedience is on us and it is an eternal, humanly unsolvable dilemma for us for which God mercifully offers an unimaginable solution, namely faith. In Jesus Christ. And the gravity of this statement so overwhelms the Apostle Paul that he breaks out into doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Oh, he says, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So great is the God of this gospel that Paul is privileged to proclaim that his heart overflows with thanksgiving and praise as he contemplates what God has done in Christ Jesus to bring about the redemption of Jew and Gentile alike. There is no God like this God. There is no God who is so rich in grace and mercy, so perfectly wise that he is able to bring all things to the perfect end, which God also knows so well. God has no equal. Verses 34 and 5 
are Scripture-inspired declarations that Paul makes to underscore the supremacy of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? This plan for the salvation of mankind is not the product of human ingenuity or inspiration. This plan is not something that man could have ever conceived or invented, but rather its unique solution to the problem of our sin could only have come from the heart and mind of God. And Paul perceives the depth of the riches of God's love and grace which serves as the foundation for this plan of salvation. He perceives the magnificence of God's providence in bringing centuries worth of human events to their timely conclusion. He perceives the brilliance of God's ultimate end to all things and he cannot help but break forth in praise and adoration for the glory yet to be revealed. There is no God like our God. And Paul recognizes that there is no man capable of searching out what God has done, is doing, or will do. And there is no man capable of finding fault in the ways of the Lord. And with that, Paul ends with a final word of praise and adoration. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now what Paul is saying is that there is nothing in this world that does not owe its existence to God. There is nothing in this world that continues to exist apart from God's sustaining power. There's nothing in this world that will not ultimately discover that God is the goal of its very existence. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now here is the biblical truth that countermands the world's narrative. That we came into being out of nothing. That we continue to exist by our own machinations and ingenuity as we fight against one existential threat after another. And that our ultimate destiny is oblivion. What a surprise it will be when those who deny the very existence of God discover that God created them in His own image and gave them work to do that He lovingly sustained them by His grace, though they offered Him no thanksgiving or gratitude while they lived in rebellion, and that their chief end is not their personal happiness, but rather it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Beloved, the God who created us is always to be praised. He is always to be honored and thanked for His providential care. And He is always to be glorified for His grace and mercy offered in Jesus. May our hearts, may our minds always be attuned to this truth. And may our lives never fail to be centered upon Him. Let me invite you to pray with me for a moment this morning.